2: The following content is not suitable for children.
1: Hey, foreplay fam, we've got a guest for you. We're so excited. We have Dr. Emily Nagoski. Welcome to Foreplay Radio, Couples and Sex Therapy. I'm Lori Watson, your sex therapist.
2: And I'm George Fallon, your couples therapist.
1: And we are passionate about talking about sex and helping you develop a way to talk to each other.
2: Our mission is is to help our audience develop a healthier relationship to sex that integrates the mind, the heart, and the body.
1: Just as we begin, please remember to check out UberLube. UberLube.com is where you can get this great lubricant and help support 4Play Radio. Emily, we're happy to have you Dr. Emily Nagoski is an award-winning author of the New York Times bestseller, Come As You Are, great title, Emily, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life, The Come As You Are Workbook, which is fantastic, And the co-author with her sister Amelia of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. So you got it going in both places, right? These are the two top things that women are concerned about, stress and sex. And she began her work as a sex educator at the University of Delaware, where she volunteered as a peer sex educator while studying psychology with minors in Cognitive science and philosophy. Ooh. She went on to earn um, M.S. in counseling and a Ph.D. in health behavior, both from the Indiana University, with clinical and research training at the Kinsey Institute. Yay, that! Now she combines sex education and stress education to teach women to live with confidence and joy in their bodies. Welcome. Hello. We're connected. We've been having trouble we get it. connecting, Yay. which is so apropos, right, for what we're going to talk about. Exactly. The trouble connecting. Everything's a metaphor. Everyth- when you're talking about sex, it's hard to miss. Everything is a metaphor. I have listened to your TED Talks, read your book, listened to you and your sister. You guys are fantastic together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, thank you. Yes. Yes. I, I love it. How is it podcasting with your sister?
0: It's great. We very the title of it is The Feminist Survival Project 2020. Thank you. Because uh in the summer of 2019, I was looking ahead and thinking, well, "That's that's going to be a rough year." Yeah. How am I going to get through it? Yeah. And I thought and I survive, I get a sense of meaning and purpose by feeling like I'm helping people, helping women in particular live with confidence and joy in their bodies. And I was like, I need to have something in place to feel like I'm doing that. So Amelia and I started a podcast. And the whole point of it is just to like, give us a sense that we are contributing. And no matter what kind of hellscape the world turns into, we know that we are one little voice Helping people access strategies to cope with the stress, the exhaustion, the overwhelm, the really intense. I mean, I I knew 2020 was going to be bad. I did not know. I was going to say, how did you know looking forward how bad it was going to be? I didn't know it was going to be this bad. (laughs) Yeah. Very, very
1: frank. I did not think the survival would be this literal. Yeah. And we are going to have all your links on our website, and we'll post them on Facebook and everywhere on social media so that you guys will be able to find Emily and all her resources. And so, what it's like to record with Amelia is it, it saves my life. Oh, that is so sweet. She doesn't live near you, she lives apart a- away from you. She actually lives only about 40 minutes away. I see. And we
0: used to record in the same room, but then COVID happened, and now we don't.
2: Aww. I'm so happy to have you join us because you have such a healthy, positive perspective of sex. And that's so much of the mission of our podcast is to really get people to have fun with this topic, to really see how important it is. And most of us grow up in families where we don't talk about it. Right, So to really challenge people's assumption, I think we're seeing this with so many other areas of our society. We have these systemic ways of believing things that we never even challenge. And unless we're intentional and proactive, then we're just going to get stuck in these same places over and over again. So thank you for joining us on this.
1: Oh, it's literally my favorite thing in the world. (laughs) To talk about sex. We have some things in common. (laughs) Emily, I want you to talk about some of the things that are in your book. And I think our listeners, they know where their clitoris is, and we hope that their partners do now as well. But could you, I don't know if they know where their brakes and accelerators are. So could you tell us how to find those things and what they are and what we need to know about it? They're in your brain. Good.
0: so uh, so this it was a transformative thing for me to learn and as I've been teaching it over the last couple of decades, I've watched it change other people's lives too. and it actually is an incredibly simple idea that once you know it, you're like, of course that's how it works. And it's this the dual control model of sexual response dual control model. so how many parts does it have? does two parts. So the first is the sexual accelerator or gas pedal. That knows, It notices all the sex-related information in the environment, everything that you see, hear, anything you smell, touch, taste, or, and this is crucial, anything you think, believe, or imagine that that accelerator codes as related to sex. Mm-hmm. When it notices any of those things, it sends that turn-on signal that a lot of us are familiar with. And it's functioning all the time at a low level. We're right. talking about sex right now, so it's it's a eh, little bit of, yeah. I guess there's some sex-related information. But at the same time <laughs> and in parallel, if the first part is the gas pedal, then the second part's going to be the, the brakes. And the brakes notice all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. Everything that you see, hear, smell, touch taste, think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat and it sends a turn off signal. So Mm. your level of arousal at any given moment is this balance of how many on's are turned on and how many off's Are turned off. When you want to increase arousal, yes, you activate the accelerator, you add stimulation to the gas pedal, but more importantly, you want to get rid of the stuff that's hitting the brakes. And when people are struggling, it's very rarely because there's not enough stimulation to the gas pedal. It's much more likely that there's too much stimulation to that brake.
1: Mm -hmm. I would totally agree with you for women that the brakes are really heavy on us. I I love your quiz. It's a really short quiz that you can find in Emily's book, Come As You Are. And I took it. It was very interesting. It talked about the, you know, what my brakes and accelerators were. And then it kind of rates you in terms of how you rank with other women, which was so interesting.
0: In the Come As You Are workbook, I used items on a survey that are more gender neutral. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, you're a person who does not have a menstrual cycle, you'll find the Come As You Are workbook version of it more applicable. I did that by request from therapists. therapist. So we're like, can you get
1: one that works for men? Yeah, my husband took, took the one in your book and he was like, oh, I don't know about this. So yeah. I'm really so glad to know that. Quiz. Okay, perfect. We will buy your workbook too.
0: And there's actually a revised updated edition of Come As You Are coming out next year. That's also going to have the more gender inclusive version of the quiz.
2: When I listen to your TED talk, and I think what I really love in watching any of your talks is just how, how personal and intimate you get with your own story, right? And so you were saying, you know, the two predictors of a of great sex being that safe attachment, that friendship and trust, and the other thing about mm-hmm. prioritizing sex. And here you are, a total expert in the field, and you find yourself in your own relationship not wanting sex, which is like totally fascinating that you're coming from this place of your own story. So how are you able to kind of turn that on, to kind of prioritize that, to really, you know, make this to walk the talk?
0: So I'm facilitated in it because I have an extraordinary partner who's sitting over there and he's going to know that I'm talking about him and he's going to feel embarrassed. That's good. (laughs) Put his fingers in his ears. But because he is... So I have to go back a little. In Burnout a Million, I discuss a phenomenon called human giver syndrome, where, you know, certain people feel a moral obligation to be uh, pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others at all times, at the ex- no matter what the cost is to themselves. And when a human giver like that is in a relationship with someone who feels entitled to take anything the giver gives... Then you get into a really gross dynamic where the giver just keeps giving and keeps giving and constantly feels like they're not enough, but also starts to feel resentful. And the other person in the relationship doesn't know what's missing. So a lot of people are in relationships like that. And I certainly have been in relationships like that. And that does not work out well in terms of sex. But I am in a relationship where both of us are givers. We both feel a moral obligation to give to the other person, to show up, Mm. to meet each other's needs. He will, like, just give everything he has in support of me. He has spent this entire day, I lost 500 words of my book, and I've been in copy editing hell, and he's been in here. He has his own work to do, and he has just been here for me. Right. Are you there for me is Sue Johnson's key question. He has just been there for me this whole time. So because he's willing to be present with me, because he's willing to be patient with me and not push me really hard, because he knows the science that, like, if my brakes are hit, if I'm just exhausted, overwhelmed, stressed out, it has nothing to do with him not turning me on. It's that my brakes are activated by all this other stuff that has nothing to do with him. And it takes time for me to release the brake to get rid of all that stuff. I depend on the science confirming that I am normal, that just because things have changed doesn't mean there's something broken. That does not mean that all the time... I can, like, warmly accept, like, it's okay that my desire for sex has diminished from what it was before. That's completely fine. I don't judge myself at all just because I'm a sexpert who has low sexual desire. (laughs) There are days, totally, when I'm, like, oh, flogging myself. (laughs) And just just beating the crap out of myself, do you think that uh, makes it easier for me to get turned on? (laughs) No, sounds like a break. Totally, and he knows that, too. So basically, the way I do it is I um, marry the right person. Well, oh, what would you that's be? That's good advice. This
2: will be my last question here. But I think a lot of our listeners aren't so fortunate. What would you do if your partner would be normally resentful and frustrated and letting you know that?
0: Oh, communication skills. There is, I think, a powerful motivation in uh, clarifying that when you're resentful and frustrated and you push me in this chasing dynamic, that just makes me, le- it hits my brakes, it makes it more difficult for me to want sex with you. I talked to a couple, maybe a year and a half ago, who had been in a low desire situation ever since she got pregnant and their child was about eight months old Mm -hmm. at that point. Sure. Um, Typical. And I made a suggestion, which is very common, which is like, take sex off the table, no pressure, no performance demand, take sex entirely off the table. And he goes for how long? And I was like, I don't know. You've been struggling with this for a long time. So three months. And he goes, Oh, like rolls his eyes. And I was like, let's pause for a moment. (laughs) And I turned to the mother of his child and said, when you see that facial expression at the idea of not having sex for three months, how does that make you feel? And like this flood of emotion came out that was all about the way she felt inadequate and was falling short and she wanted to meet his needs. And the whole difficulty was that they were having sex that she didn't want or like so that she would meet his expectations and desires. And he didn't want that. He wanted her to want it. And like this was maybe the moment when he finally recognized that his impatience with her is the thing that was making it so difficult for her to move toward him. Mm. Does that make sense?
2: It makes perfect sense. So your theory of change would be him understanding his impatience and how it plays out would be enough for him to be able to kind of turn off all this muscle memory of of, of pushing?
0: When there's a higher desire partner, I ask them the question, what is it that you want when you want sex? Because it's not just an orgasm. You can have an orgasm by yourself. Mm. So what is it that you want? And in this one person's case, the answer was really clearly, I want to be wanted And uh, he managed to get to a place where he's like, it's difficult for my partner to want me when I am judging her for not wanting me.
1: Mm -hmm. Such a bind. Mm -hmm. Such a bind.
0: Right. Like it's complicated and difficult and there's a lot of feelings to get through. And this is a place where EFT comes in really handy, separating the process of solving the actual problem versus the process of dealing with all the feelings that everyone has about the problem.
2: It's really good.
1: Emily, I loved the part that you talk about how women can become more comfortable with their vulvas. And I want you to talk about how they can do this and how they can introduce their vulva to their partner. This is one
0: that's actually pretty simple. The research is, it's basically just exposure. Look at your genitals. It is a thing that A surprising number of people have never done. This is not necessarily, I wanna put the caveat that this is not necessarily advice that I give for trans folks, gender non binary folks, people who feel like their genitals are not congruent with their gender identity. Those folks have a different relationship with their genitals, and this is not the advice I give. But if you feel like your genitals are congruent with your identity, it's time to make friends with your genitals. I first did this. It was my very first semester of training as a sex educator. I was 18 years old. I grew up in a very sort of like regular American household in terms of my sex education, which is that I got no sex education. And like, it wasn't particularly negative. And somehow when I went to look at my vulva, I felt like I was armoring up to go confront an enemy somehow. <laughs> like, where did, where did I get that? What? Nobody had ever told me explicitly to feel bad about my genitals, but there it was. so I went, I got a little hand mirror, and I looked, and I burst into tears immediately mm. because I just I realized it was this very normal part of my body, like the undersides of my feet, which I also don't look at very often. And they're kind of weird when you finally do look at them, right? Mm -hmm. That's like, they're very interesting looking, but they're just part of me. And there's no need to hold on to that emotion around them. And I could, when I could let go of that fear and that sort of like fight feeling, it created space for this affection. And I could integrate that part of my body into my schema of myself, Mm. um, which let me, when you can turn toward your own body with kindness and compassion, it is much easier to access pleasure. That's beautiful. We talked about breaks and gas, uh, disliking your own body, being worried about your own body is a really classic breaks hitting factor.
2: Do you feel men have a similar difficult relationship with their penis?
0: I do, actually. Uh, Last summer, I was at a meeting just sitting around at brunch talking to a bunch of sex therapists, and many of them were saying that they have a lot of single men clients who come in and basically what they need to do is sit and talk about their feelings about their penis, that they have this really complicated relationship and there's no one that they can talk to about how difficult their feelings are because they're supposed to be fine. It's supposed to be simple and easy and to dare admit that you have a more complicated relationship with your penis is to be doing being a man wrong. Mm.
2: And you would say the biggest complaint is size? Then that's what they're finding not liking about their penis?
0: I don't know. I think it's probably more complicated than that. Size is just the sort of like porn script that we get. Because when we're talking about heterosexual men who like to put their penises into vaginas, when you talk to the people who have the vaginas who like having penises put in them, they're pretty clear that size is not a factor. It just isn't. And yet, this pressure remains. It's like women in thinness. Like, among men who enjoy women's bodies, that's really not so much a thing, except insofar as it could be a status marker I think, and this is not an area where I'm an expert, but I think that when men get really complicated feelings of inadequacy around their penises, it's because uh, it's a status marker Mm -hmm. of their masculinity and whether or not they are enough as men. It's not about the shape and size per se. It's about what it means and whether or not they are good enough.
2: Right, which adds that layer of complication. If if I have premature ejaculation Mm -hmm. or I can't maintain an arousal, now all of a sudden... It, I start developing a different relationship with yeah. my penis. Yeah.
0: And I, this, when I say these things out loud, I feel a little silly. But everybody who feels congruent with their genitals, if they can take a moment to practice touring toward their genitals with kindness and compassion, like they're a part of their body that has just suffered a lot of criticism and shame and grief and disconnect and freeze, total shutdown, like Mm -hmm. turn toward it now with kindness and compassion. Like your genitals were a child that had experienced all those things, been told all their lives that they are inadequate, that they are ugly, that they are shameful and dirty and smelly and bad and wrong and broken. And like hold them in your heart and let them know they're enough. They're just fine.
2: This sounds like Good homework assignment to all our listeners out there. I love there. it. Right, this is what you're going to do today.
1: <laughs> you're going to move toward your genitals with kindness. We are grateful to Uberlube for still sponsoring us. This is a fantastic lube if you haven't tried it yet, please check it out at uberlube.com with the coupon foreplay, which gives you 10% off. I keep forgetting to tell people that. They can support <laughs> us and they can try this great lubrication which is really, it's made out of a high-grade silicone. And, you know, I do all kinds of ratings on lubrications just in my work. And silicone doesn't get absorbed into the body, so it, it really provides smooth touch, smooth intercourse, a great glide. It's scent-free. It is taste-free. So you can switch from foreplay to oral sex to intercourse with no problem.
2: Well, if you're using Uber Lube to enhance and relax your body... Then it's just that much easier to open up your mind and expand your heart.
1: And having something fun that makes sex even better, I would love for you to try Uberlube.
2: Support the Foreplay podcast and save ten percent off your order when you use the coupon code Foreplay at Uberlube.com.
1: We've done two Facebook lives for our patrons, George, really? and we try to do that once a quarter. We try to send newsletters and give exclusive material. But it's really, we are grateful for people who believe in our mission to help couples keep it hot and help inform people and help them talk about sex, help them get better at their sexual relationship.
2: Right. And partnering with us, is it's really an honor to know people are joining us on this mission, that this is a an effort to produce and for the listeners to put aside time and and we hope that's valuable. But when, when we join forces, it's just a lot easier to get that message out there. So we so appreciate the support both financial and just to make those ratings and to spread the word because Mm -hmm. our world really needs it.
1: It does. And we get so many letters from people, not just patrons that are grateful for what we're doing and say, it's changing their lives and, so if you want to help us change the world, we would appreciate that support. And certainly this is something that our hearts are in, and we've given a lot to and you can join with us. Okay, George, you open us up with hedgehogs. What do you want
2: to say about the hedgehogs? <laughs> well, listen, again, my, one of my favorite parts of your books is just your description of these hedgehogs that just show up in all relationships and really wreak havoc. And people don't know how to talk about them and take them so personal. And you really, you really helped change really my relationship to hedgehogs, right? To see the opportunity of these hedgehogs to do something <laughs> differently. Could you just kind of give our listeners a little, a little quick talk about these hedgehogs?
0: Yeah. So this is my sort of sleepy hedgehog theory of emotion. So all of us have difficult feelings, difficult feelings that are like hard to handle and you don't know what to do with them and you just want to get them out. But they're like these sleepy hedgehogs where like you find it and it's quiet right now. But if you approach it in the wrong way, really bad things could happen. So you approach your difficult feelings the way you would approach this sleepy hedgehog. You want to stay really calm about it, approach it. You want to listen to what its needs are so that it will stay calm. You may need to enlist your partner's help. It's useful to be able to give a name to the hedgehog. This is my hedgehog. Her name is Loneliness. This is my hedgehog. Her name is Rage. And here is what she needs so that we can set her free. And you collaborate together to figure out what the needs are so that this emotion can be released. And when people have any sort of conflict in a relationship, but I think especially around sex, because we are all so like, tender and so worried about hurting our partner's feelings and we're so worried about falling short, we have to be really gentle with each other's difficult feelings around sexuality, like the frustration of like wanting sex and being turned down like that frustration, you have to be so gentle and tender and you have to collaborate on meeting the needs of that frustration separate from the process of solving the sexual difficulties. Um, and mm-hmm. the, the remember, I married the right person. He's, a, he's an artist. He would not want me to use nice. that word. So when we were talking about this, he actually drew an elevator, hedgehog-sized elevator, going down off of our bed uh, toward a little hedge along the wall of the bedroom, like an escape route for the hedgehogs. Because the deal is when you've got hedgehogs that are interfering with your sex life, it's like your bed is covered in hedgehogs. I'm like, no wonder you cannot you have, have to sex. to give them an your escape Your bed's covered hatch. in hedgehogs. You need to find a way to, like, set all the hedgehogs free each individually. And you can't just, like, push them off with a sheet. You have to, like, treat each one with kindness and compassion and then release it because it wants to go home.
2: It's a lovely metaphor. Yeah, I'm writing that down. An escape route for the hedgehog. What a different way, instead of fighting it and scaring it and battling it, and it just doesn't leave to actually give it an escape route, listen to the wisdom of what it has to share and be compassionate with it. Awesome image.
0: It is easier said than done,
2: right? Well, it's nice to have a clear target right on what gives us the best chance of success and why some things don't work. But yes, we all fall short of that.
1: I love the gentleness and essentially it's, it's a visualization of a mindfulness, right? Mm -hmm. A way we can think about things and, and not be so judgmental, but be kind and compassionate toward our difficulties and our partner's difficulties. And we find it so much easier to be kind
0: toward others than we do toward ourselves. So I find the image of the hedgehog sort of externalizes the emotion And so Mm -hmm. you can be, even though it's your emotion and it's inside your body, it's externalized because you have this sort of imaginary object. And the brain research actually shows us that people have an easier time being kind toward like a characterized emotion inside Mm -hmm. themselves than just turning toward their own selves with straightforward self-compassion. Mm-hmm. If you struggle with self-compassion, try doing it this other way of creating a metaphor or a persona or an image for that emotion to create a little distance between mm-hmm. you and that thing inside you.
1: Right. And activate that part of us that wants to take care of of others. Exactly. Of others. But we turn it toward ourselves. That's beautiful.
2: Thank mm-hmm. you. That's awesome.
1: Tell us, too, about context and how things totally change with different context. Oh, yes. Oh, I love this so much.
0: So the short version, uh, take the example of tickling. I know tickling uh, is uh, not a... Yes, no tickling. Now, yeah, some people <laughs> don't love it under any circumstances. But if you're like really turned on and you have a great connection with your partner, super duper trusting, you're feeling really playful, there might be a time when your partner could tickle you and it would lead to other things and feel good. But if that same partner tries to tickle you when you are pissed off at them and in the middle of a fight... You could deck him. You, you want to punch him in the face a little bit? Maybe. It's the same sensation, right? It's even the same partner. The difference is in the context. When your brain is in a stressed out, unsafe state, 90% of your nucleus accumbens shell becomes committed to avoidance motivation, moving mm-hmm. away from any stimulus, even a stimulus that in a different context it would have interpreted as a sensation to move toward with curiosity. Mm. This also is the explanation of why spanking can feel good. Mm-hmm. Like If you're in a really turned on, trusting state like that and your partner swats your butt, that can feel good in the right context with full permission and usually expecting it. Um, but if you're in the middle of, if you're trying to get out the door, but you're changing the baby's diaper and you are wrist deep in poop and your partner swats your ass, <laughs> not so much. I, I tell that story advisedly from a specific woman who sat with me at lunch and she was, we were talking about context and she was like, can you please tell my husband that? Because here's what happened. And the words that came out of his mouth after he swatted her ass when she is wrist deep in baby poop. What he asked was, do you want to have sex tonight? What was the answer to that question? Probably a big no. Big a no. big fat no. Any, yeah. And there are so many other choices he could have made in that moment <laughs> to make the answer yes. <laughs> yeah, wrong
1: context for that.
0: Yeah, so it's a question of, like, what can we do? Because pleasure is not about touch me in this spot in this way and don't ever touch me that way or in this other spot. It's about creating a context that allows your brain to interpret the world and all these sensations as safe and fun and sexy and pleasurable. So when you think about that, like, what can I do to create a context that allows, that creates the opportunity to get access to pleasure and that's going to be the stuff that hit the accelerator, but even more than that, the stuff that gets
1: rid of all the stuff that's hitting the brakes. So you talk about three things. There's low stress. We mm-hmm. want to get rid of stress. That's a break. High affection, which is an accelerator, and explicitly erotic cues. Right. And high for trust. a better word. And high trust. Mm-hmm. That's is, the context that we can turn on in.
0: Stress is it varies from person to person. About 80% of people find that stress may not have a big impact um or it reduces their interest in sex. 10 to 20% of people find that stress can actually increase their interest in sex. So people mm-hmm. vary a little bit in what their relationship between stress and sex is, but for a lot of people reducing stress is an important factor, increasing trust, increasing affection, Which the combination of trust and affection, I'm basically saying attachment, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and explicitly erotic because that's how you get the accelerator on
2: board. Moving. Yeah, I found your term "non-concordant sex" also helpful because sometimes your physical response might be different than what your words are saying, and this I think is part of the confusion around communicating with sex. And we're so taught that, you know, what our body's saying is the absolute truth, you know, and, and, and so can you speak more to that? Yes. Yeah.
0: So what our bodies are saying is the absolute truth, but we have been taught the wrong thing about what our body means, what our, what our body's behaviors mean. So we have been taught, here's what I grew up with. Penises get hard and a person wants sex. Uh, vaginas get wet and a person is ready for sex wants it likes it and it turns out even the most superficial understanding of the mesolimbic cortex she said totally understanding that that's ridiculous even the most <laughs> i can't say it twice <laughs> when Part you, of the brain when you look at the structure of our emotional brain It's got three intertwined but separable parts. The part that is pleasure, right? So this is the hedonic hotspots, opioids. This is uh, the fireworks that goes off when you put sugar on the tip of your tongue that just goes, oh, yes. And in the right context, sexual touch, pleasure, right? And then there's desire or wanting. This is dopamine mediated. It's not just in tiny little hot spots. It's spread all throughout the brain. And it's the one that motivates you to pursue something. Now, yeah, there's a relationship between pleasure and desire. We tend to want more of things we like, very generally speaking. But there's a big difference between sitting and eating ice cream and just enjoying the hell out of how delicious this mouthful of ice cream is versus, for example, my niece when she was little used to follow my brother around and go, Dad, what's in the freezer? Hey, what's in the freezer? Do you know what's in the freezer? What's in the freezer? June, you know what's in the freezer. Is it ice cream? (laughs) That's wanting. That's desire. That's pursuit. She's motivated because Mm -hmm. she has a memory of pleasure. So they're related, yeah, but they are separable. And then there's this third system, which is basically the Pavlov's dog system. We all have heard of Pavlov probably. He trained dogs to salivate in response to a bell. Anybody could do it. You just give a dog food. The dog salivates automatically. And then you ring a bell. Food, salivate, bell. Food, salivate, bell. Until eventually you can just ring the bell and the dog salivates because the dog's brain has learned that the bell... Predicts food, a food related stimulus has happened. Uh, but does that salivation in response to a bell mean that the dog finds the sound of the bell delicious? Does he like the bell? Does the does it mean that the dog wants to eat the bell? No, it's just a food related stimulus. It turns out our genital blood flow is a lot like that. It's this other system. That's related to the liking and the wanting, but is separable in the same way pleasure and desire are separable. Mm. So it turns out, in particular, heterosexual women's genitals. Will respond to kind of anything that even gestures in the direction of being sex related, whether they are interested in it, like actually pursuing anything in terms of desire or even in terms of pleasure. Your genitals can respond. That does not mean you're experiencing pleasure. It means something sex related is happening. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. We and can And I got feel- taught my whole life that my genital response meant that I wanted or liked something. So when I'm in my early 20s, I'm working as a sexual violence resp- crisis responder, you know, like on a hotline. And there were times when I would listen to stories of terrible things that had happened to people and I would notice my genitals respond. And I thought doing this work is screwing up my sexuality. I need to stop it because I am turning into some kind of monster being turned on by this stuff. Mm. Ew, yuck. And then I learned about arousal non-concordance. And I was like, oh, no, we just live in a sufficiently screwed up world that some of the things that are sex related are also terrible, are totally Mm -hmm. unwanted and unliked. And when I could separate those things, I was free to just be like, oh, there's my genitals responding. Some of the things that are sex related that I'm exposed
1: to are neither wanted nor liked. So my body may turn on, but I still don't want sex. Or my, I may want sex and I'm having a hard time turning my body on. Yeah. It goes in both directions. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah and I think that's so helpful. To take some of this pressure off. Everything has to be lined up and perfect for it to, to work right. And
0: it's not like this is like some strange feature of sexuality. This is true for all of our emotional and motivational systems. One of my favorite examples is music. Uh, so you know the feeling of chills that you get when you listen to really great songs? Yes. They study chills in the laboratory by playing music that is that is known to cause chills and they ask people hey did you experience chills and they measure the physiological predictor of chills so usually chills means piloerection your hair standing on end so they literally put a camera on a person's arm to see if their hair stands on end and they ask them did you get chills turns out there is not a relationship between getting chills and having your hair stand on end. Huh. Wow. And if you're Celine Dion, singing My Heart Will Go On, which is one of the songs known to cause chills, which do you want? Do you want people to walk out of your concert going, that was fine, but their hair stood up? Or do you want them walking out of the concert going, oh, I had chills, and their hair stayed totally
1: flat? Which matters to you, right? The feeling, the subjective feeling, absolutely so thank you emily for all that you've given us today i mean these are important concepts i i love what you've said about our brakes and accelerators and how we can get comfortable with our vulva and context and non concordant sex that understanding i think will be really helpful to people and i just appreciate your time today and being with us on foreplay radio and you can find emily on ted talks her books come as you are The Workbook, Come As You Are Workbook, and Burn Out, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. And we can find you on your podcast, which is... The Feminist Survival Project 2020. Thanks for listening. Keep it hot. And P.S., please tune in to our Patreon page so that you can catch the next exclusive episode and our next Facebook
2: Live. We appreciate you joining us to spread this really important message call in your questions to the foreplay question voicemail dial 833 my play that's 833 the number 4 play and we'll use the questions for our mailbag episodes all content is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered as a substitute for therapy by a licensed clinician or as medical advice from a doctor seeking the truth never gets old